Hello everyone, this is George Matt, the Carolina Tar Wheels. Today we have Branson Kimball as our guest. He's a, a randonneur, and if you're like me, you're unfamiliar with the term. It's a long-distance endurance bike ride. They have events that range from 125 miles, that's 200K, on up to about 800 miles. I noticed, Branson, that you are a native of North Carolina, that you're from Swepsonville, yes. which is just upstream from Saxpaha, right, which right. is a popular destination right yeah. on the Haw River. Right. And you're, you're living in Durham, and you're working with WTVD, ABC 11, right. as a producer, right? Mm-hmm. Been and, there 17 years. All right. Well, tell us what it was like to grow up in, in a pretty place like Swepsonville. Well, I started out mountain biking. I heard Paul Smith say that too. He started out mountain biking, and Bannister Allen, who owned the uh, the Schwinn franchise in Burlington, a very well known guy from from way back, used to be a racer and opened up a shop. Very colorful guy, who regrettably passed away about ten years ago. But he owned the shop that I started going to when I started mountain biking. And he kept telling me, well, if you love mountain biking, you would love road bikes. And I, I, I didn't really understand what he meant. And I said, ah, I'd rather dodge trees than dodge cars. But he said, you'll get hooked on it one day. You'll, you'll get on there on a road bike and you'll get that sense of speed and you'll love it. And he was right. I eventually did. Uh, back in 1992, I eventually got a road bike and started road biking. And Burlington at, at the time had a small group of uh, dedicated bicyclists, um, some who rode, commuted, but most of them were recreational. And we would ride out around Swepsonville, Saxpahaw, Snow Camp, and that's where my family came from, was out of Snow Camp. They were Quakers there in Snow Camp. And I just loved it. I loved seeing the place that I called home from a different vantage point, and that was on, the, on a bicycle as opposed to a car. So I've done a little bit of riding out there. As I recall, um, you know, they're sort of two-lane roads. There, there's not a lot of traffic out in that area, so it's a pretty good place to ride. It's it's a fantastic place to ride, and um, it's rural, so most of the people are used to slow-moving vehicles, whether tractors or pickup trucks filled with something, and they're just generally not in a hurry. And so it was a great place to learn how to ride on the road and share the road just around people that uh, were in no huge hurry. And it was a beautiful country, and I've often said there are places around Snow Camp that look like they could be interchanged with parts of Normandy in France. Um, it just has that, you come around a curve, and you're like, wow, where am I? Because <laughs> it feels like you're almost transported back to, to France and vice versa. I've been in France and thought, this looks like home. This looks like Orange County or Alamance County or Durham County. Sort of that hilly terrain and some rivers and stream passing through, that sort of thing. And big meadows with rolling hills. Yeah, I've done a little bit of canoeing on the Haw River. And to see it from a canoe, from the river itself, and to ride those rapids, it really is gives, you, gives me a whole different outlook on, on nature in this part of the state. Mm-hmm. It's so, so beautiful out there. It is. So how did you get started in this long-distance event? Well, I'd read some accounts from local randonneurs. This this area actually has a lot of randonneurs who have been doing it for a long time. Alan Johnson, who is our RBA, the, the local leader of the 
NCBC group of randonneurs. He's been doing this since 1982. And so he's really developed a lot of people that by offering these series year in, year out, this is the 33rd year he's offered a series, which is 200, 300K, 400K, and 600K. Right in North Carolina. Here. Right in Morrisville, in starting North from Morrisville. And we go out to Snow Camp and then to Siler City and back for the 200K. And then the 300 and 400Ks just continually add to that until we go from Morrisville to Troy, back to Morrisville for the uh, 400K. And the 600K is completely different. It goes from Morrisville to Wilmington and back. I see. Um, but Alan's been doing these uh, as RBA for um, more than a dozen years, I believe. Um, but even before Alan was the RBA, he was very instrumental and he was one of the guys who did it all the time. But there are several people that he helped foster and who now are fostering others. And I read several accounts of how you do these long rides. Uh, Cindy Vanderweel, who lives here in Durham, she had a wonderful checklist of what you need to have. And so she was, re- I thought, wow, how does someone do this? And then there was a um, another really great writer, writer named Lisa, Lisa Rosen, who's from Cary. So I was reading her accounts of how you do this. As someone had never ridden more than 110 miles I just didn't understand how you can ride 360 miles. So, you know, how does that work? And then, of course, it was the group that you were around. They convinced you that you can do it too. And those accounts were really what started me thinking about trying it. I've done Cycle North Carolina a few times. And so I wanted to take that next step, see how far I could go. And I think that was the big allure was how far can I go? How far can I push my body and see how far I can really go on a bicycle. Yeah, it's a, a big difference cycle and see it. You're sort of pampered on a ride like that as opposed to a, a rondeneur where you're, you're more or less on your own uh, and it's for long periods of time right. and it's day and night. 24-hour events, which are, uh, what do they call their... Uh, flesh. Flesh, mm-hmm. uh, where... You're not allowed to uh, stop for to rest for more than two hours. Two hours at a time, right? right? So yes, it does make you wonder how one can uh, endure this. Well, you know, that's it's funny you say that because at the time they're not very fun. But always looking back, especially when things did not go well uh, or as you expected them to, some of those rides turn out to be the best in your memory because it was you overcame something that. Um, maybe you didn't think you could, or you um, learned something about yourself that um, you wouldn't have any other way. Um, so it is funny how those turn out. At the time, it may be the worst thing in the world, but almost invariably, looking back one day, you go, wow, that was a lot of fun. And uh, a good friend of mine from Seattle named Joe Platzner, who actually is a frame builder, uh, he has a saying that... Um, there are no the the worst the worst decisions make the best stories. The worst decisions make the best stories. Yeah, I've heard. That. I took a writing course at one time, and I remember somebody commented that uh, the worst day of your life is probably the best thing to write about. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Well, I think they must have been a random. <laughs> 
And I guess uh, a lot of times you you have uh, you hook up with another rider, and the two of you kind of ride together to as long as you can, right? Mm-hmm. As long as until one person sort of uh, gives up and lets the other one go. Well, that's usually how it works, but um, it's true. One of the first things I learned from Mike Dayton, who was uh, up until recently the president of the Randoners USA, so he was the president of the entire group of randoners here in the country and he's one of the four cyclists who was uh recently hit and injured oh okay he uh he taught me i did my first 200k with him it was just the two of us i'd never done anything like this before in my life i never had ever thought i would ride 126 miles or 124 miles and and he showed me how to do it i'd ask him well what is the secret how do you do this and he told me there is no secret, he said, but the, the truth is you have to ride your own ride. So if that puts you in touch with someone, um, great. But if not, you need to be prepared and able to do it on your own. And it certainly is true. The times I've tried to stay with someone who is faster than me, either too too fast or too slow, you don't feel entirely comfortable uh, and it is true that you have to ride your own ride. And sometimes that means you spend time with, with other riders, and sometimes you're, you're out there by yourself. And you just know it. And I think the people around you also just know it. After a while, you just develop the sense about when, when company is good for you or, or for them, or when you just need to be alone. I see. Uh, now... Um... I'm I'm guessing that this uh, Paris ride is probably the the one that has the largest attendance, right? The largest number of rides. It was it five thousand riders or so. Uh, more than six thousand in 2015. Wow. Okay. So on that ride, you're unlikely to be. I mean, the way they have the checkpoints and the time controls, mm-hmm. and you have to be at a certain place at a certain time. Right. Do they do they start you out in heats? They start you out in, in waves of uh, 300 riders. You know, something they haven't done until this past past edition in 2015. Before that, they started out massive waves of like 500 people. Um, but this last time, they tried to keep it down to 250, 300 people at a time. And it made it much, much more enjoyable. Um, so there were times that I was surrounded by people. But there were still times when I was completely on my own. And I couldn't see anyone in front of me. I couldn't see anyone behind me. Um, and I think that's part of the lure is that you have crowds if you decide to to ride with a crowd. But it, at the same time, you can also be completely on your own. And when I say alone, that's as far as riders go because you're never really alone. All these little medieval villages that you go through, there's always someone outside clapping and giving you a bon courage and allez, allez, you know, um, and stopping, wanting you to stop and have a cafe, a coffee, or a pastry. And all they ask for in return is a postcard when you get home. They just want to know where you're from. So there were times when I was alone, riding on, on my own. But usually that was because I had decided to be on my own. You know, there's always, with, with 5,000 people plus, there's always someone you can ride with. If you choose to. So that's one ride that you're unlikely to make a wrong turn because there are so many people along oh, the way. still do. So many other, other rides. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, 
And there's always stories about that. But, um, yeah, we still take wrong turns, even though it's incredibly well supported. Um, you know, by virtue of the fact that sometimes you're going on very little sleep and you've been riding for 48 hours straight, your mind just sometimes just stops working. And you take a turn that you have no idea how you did it or why you did it, but you just did. And someone will say, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> and they'll say something in French like, get back on the course, you dummy. And there was one uh, in 2011. I was riding back from uh, in between Brest and Carre. And it was really early in the morning. It was probably 2 a.m. And I was so tired. And it was cold, misty. And every every village in France seems to be on top of a hill. You know, because... Those were easily defended, so that's where they would start a town. Yeah, and so yeah. every one of these controls is at the top of a hill. And I was riding my fixed gear. So I struggled to the top of this this hill. I was tired, and it's 2 a.m., and I'm incredibly sleepy, and I'm just not having a good time. And I get to the top, and there's a roundabout. And there are like six streets coming into this roundabout. Oh, yeah. And I'm trying to find the control, which is at a, usually at a small school, like an elementary school. And I'm trying to find the control, and there are people everywhere, but no one's telling me where the control is. And so I must have taken every street off of that roundabout for about a block. And you know, before I realized where it was, I was trying to go. And I was really mad. No one was telling me where to go. <laughs> it was obvious I was a rider on the on the event, but no one was telling me where to go. And I was I was very um, <laughs> very lost and very frustrated. Yeah, yeah, so I can imagine. Yeah, my family came over in this past August for PBP, and we spent a week after PBP there in France, and we visited some friends I met on the ride uh, in 2011 who live in Rennes, which is uh, the capital of Britannia. And they're very proud Bretons in French second. So they really, uh, and they told me about this, but I had no real history, sense of history about France. But um, Britannia, or Brittany as we call it, was its own independent country up until the late 1800s. But when it was assimilated into France. Yeah. So uh, along most of the route in PBP, once you start getting into Britannia, especially um, Basque Britannia, which is lower Brittany, which is closer to the coast, you will see all the signs for the towns are bilingual. There'll be French at the top, but then there's the Breton underneath it. Okay. And usually they're similar, but a lot of times they're very different. So uh, I was going to ask you, when you get close to the coast there, Brittany, uh, you pass right by uh, Mont Saint-Michel, right? The, uh, we go close to Abbey, it. the monastery mm-hmm. there. So that's not one of your stops there. No. Probably the closest control would be 50K from Mont Saint-Michel. So not a lot of sightseeing going on. Well, we don't see a whole lot of the sights. You know, you don't, you don't miss it. You're there seeing incredible vistas you're meeting people from all over the world and you're being cared for and encouraged by these very giving french people who have seen this ride coming through their town since 1891 and so there are plenty of sights to see anyway but there's always something that just makes you go wow so once you put in 
a good first day of riding and you, you need to take a break, you need to relax, you find something to eat, you need to actually sleep a little bit. Uh, how does that happen? <laughs> well, you always start out with a plan and sometimes you have to, that plan has to adjust because of the conditions, the weather, uh, how you feel, people you meet. You know, 2007 was my first one, and it rained monsoon-type rains almost the entire time. At the time, it was the worst experience of my life. (laughs) I finished in 89 hours, even, and we had 90 hours to complete it. And I finished in 89 hours, which is only one hour cushion. And that was hair-raising. I didn't like being that close to the cutoff, but we felt like we had to keep moving and because of the rain every control we went to looked like a refugee camp if you've ever been on cycle north carolina when it's rained it was like that times 10 i mean it was just people everywhere and what it did was it taxed the the cafeterias because they have cafeterias and dorms at all the controls yeah that's what i was getting at where where do you sleep yeah so there, all these controls are basically at elementary schools or community centers. So they have a cafeteria, and then they'll have a gymnasium or a dormitory set up with cots basically everywhere. And they'll have showers, ostensibly for women and men, but almost invariably there will be guys raiding the, the women's showers, which is maybe too much information. <laughs> but, you know, there's only usually about 17% female participation. So guys will see facilities not being used, and they just start taking them, especially in European culture where the values are drastically more yes, liberal. Yes, yes, You yes, will see yes. guys just <laughs> carrying on. But um, almost all the facilities are at um, schools yeah. or community yeah. centers. A lot of co-ed facilities. A lot of co-ed <laughs> facilities. Of course, the only thing you're required to do at a control is to get your, your booklet stamped with the stamp of the officials there to prove that you've been on the route that they prescribe and they'll stamp your book even if you're outside of that time period they want you to continue you could catch up i guess right and i've got i've had friends who did um, and they allow you for if you stopped to help someone who needed aid or you were in an accident uh, or you've had a medical condition they're very lenient and the French love rules. And so you have a lot of rules that you've got to keep straight. And they tried to help you with that. And if you go outside of those parameters, they still want to help you achieve it. So they'll still stamp your booklet, even if you fall outside of the time periods. But it depends. I mean, if you're an hour or more behind, they're probably not going to uh, encourage you to continue. Okay, so... The control points, how widely separated are they? Generally about 100K. You know, about two or three hours hard riding. Sometimes sometimes more. Well, I was reading a really interesting blog about a Shenandoah 1200 that you wrote. And you mentioned that one of your riding buddies, you, you passed a post office. And you saw his bike there. I walked in and there he is. He's passed out sleeping, catching a nap. <laughs> so 
Yeah, I guess you don't carry a sleeping bag, right? That would be too much. You just carry basically what you can put in your pockets and a little pouch behind your seat, and that's it, right? Maybe a, a, something for foul weather. Mm-hmm. I usually take uh, one of those emergency foil blankets or... Mm-hmm. They fold up into a little square, and you right. can, yeah, and then they're great for just keeping the heat in, right, right in a uh, situation uh-huh. where you're outdoors and you just need to, or even indoors, or indoors. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean these post offices sometimes, um, you know, when you're working, riding hard these long hours, you're, you're generating an incredible amount of heat, and so as soon as you stop doing that and you lay down in some place. You get pretty chilled very quickly, even in summertime. It's amazing how cool you get very quickly because you're not generating that heat. So when you stop doing that and lay down or stop moving, you start getting chilled pretty quickly. Other than that, I just have a windbreaker uh, or a rain jacket, doubles as both. And I almost always, when I stop, grab that and put it on, even if I'm really hot to begin with because inevitably after about 20 minutes of taking a nap i'm going to get cold you know how summer thunderstorms are they the the rain is incredibly cold because it's coming from so high up and so even though it's maybe 90 degrees down at the surface that water is super cold and it hits you and you're going to get chilled you're going to get chilled fast uh, even in the heat of summer when it's 95 degrees, you got to have one of those jackets because uh, it's going to save your life. Yeah. Uh, You're also riding in the middle of the night. Uh, so That's some of the coldest I've ever been is riding at night, even in the summertime. It gets uh, damp and it'll get down, you know, 65 degrees and damp. If you're not prepared for, especially if it was, it's been in the 90s in the daytime, 65 and damp can feel like you're freezing to death you know especially if you stop and get off your bike you can get cold very very quickly it's nice to have just some layers that you can peel on and peel off as you need to i was trying to think of events that were similar i found on the internet this pony express recruiting poster and it's got a picture of a, a horse galloping and then it says Wanted young, skinny, wiry fellows, not over 18, must be expert riders willing to risk death daily. Orphans <laughs> preferred. <laughs> and the longest recorded ride was 380 miles. And this fellow that did it, he was called Pony Bob Halson. And he, he had the longest ride, and he also had the fastest ride, 120 miles in eight hours and he was wounded during that ride wow. so when i guess his obituary they said uh, pony bob halson who knew no fear <laughs> but yeah that's a you know it's a completely different level we're doing is hopefully fun i don't know that pony bob would have called what he was doing fun maybe he would i don't i don't know but i have a friend that i've ridden with spencer Claassen, who actually has turned this into a permanent route so Spencer, he and one other randonneur did his Pony Express route. It goes from St. Louis all the way out to somewhere in California. San Francisco is where this went, and it was like 1,800 miles. Because it took them several days. Completely on their own. It was just him and Dan Clinkingbeard. Took off, and 
So they had these same time constraints that we all do on every brevet that were calculated for all these different stops. But it's such a long permanent. I think it's one of the longest permanents in the country. But it basically follows the Pony Express route from St. Louis out to California. The Tour de France is is about 2,200 miles. And, of course, they have 22 days to uh, do that event. So. I always thought that was the hardest endurance event ever, but I'm, I'm having second thoughts now that I've learned about this uh, this sport here. Well, the Tour de France was actually inspired by Paris Press Paris. The Tour de France didn't come into being until 1898, I believe. And the guy who got the Tour de France going actually rode in Paris Press Paris and said it was madness. It was crazy. That people couldn't ride that far. But then once he realized that it was possible, he said, well, we need to make it bigger. We need to go around France. And that's how the Tour de France came into being. They they did all these audacious rides back in the early 1890s when the bicycle first started coming into, into prominence. All these people were saying, well, how far can we go? And they wanted to prove that it was not a toy. It was a... A truly another form of transportation. That's how the Tour de France came to be. So the Tour de France now has evolved into something very different. You know, whereas it used to be just like Perry Brest Paris, which is you would ride as hard as you could for as long as you could, and then you'd rest, then you'd get up and you'd do it again. You know, the Tour de France now is basically six hours long each day for 22 days or, or whatever it is. But they're going all out, the, you know, those yes. all those hours. Mm-hmm. Whereas there will be some people who do that in Paris, Brest, Paris. But the uh, vast majority of us are riding pretty hard, but we're not racing. Results are never posted by time. They're always posted alphabetically. The purpose of it is is to prove that it's possible for each of us. And the time is not really that important. But the fact that we took on a challenge such as that and we were either successful or we gave it all our all um, and were not successful the fact that we made the attempt that's the main thing they put everyone who finishes in a big book like a magazine the oldest male finisher was 80 years old and the oldest female finisher was 71 years old they were both french and I think the reason is, is really interesting. Most Americans tend to think this is a big athletic event. But a lot of the French do it as a social or a cultural event. And so you'll see people of all ages out there, from French teenagers to octogenarians out there riding this event and having a blast. So it's a very different mindset. And it's amazing. It is. It's terrific. Yeah. You have a group of people that go? There were about 30 of us from Raleigh and Durham, this area, and a few from Charlotte as well. But um, we went individually, but then we all met up there, and uh, some of of us rode together. I got to Carhaye in 2015 and 2011, um, and I put my head down because I was riding alone. And I heard this American, loud American. And I'm like, I knew that voice. And I looked up and it was a bunch of guys from here. And uh, I was on my way back going through Carhaye, but they were on their way still going out. Okay. And so we said hello and it gave me a huge lift to, you know, see someone I knew. Um, 
And then in this past year, in 2015, came back through to Car Hay, and I was riding with two other friends of mine. And I put my head down. <laughs> I heard the same voice. It was John Indy again. And I went over to him and said, Branson, we got to stop meeting like this. <laughs> so we're all the way in you know, some little town in Brittany, and there, there, there he is again. It's like deja vu. And uh, all over again, <laughs> George. Do you want to do that? Um, I would love to think I could do it. You could. It's, it's quite a, uh, you know, to train for this thing oh. and, and get ready. And you, you got to devote your life to this, right? To, I, to... I don't know. That, that's my point. I think the French do it in a different way. They, they, they qualify, but it's not a. Um, it's not all consuming to them as it is to Americans yeah. and the Germans. The Germans are the same way. The Germans tend to do it by the book and, you know, everything's just right and they got to do it hard. Yeah. And the French are like, ah, say la vie. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it comes out to like an eight and a half mile an hour average. Right. That you would have to do if you were yeah. to ride continuously. <laughs> yeah. So that's... You know, eight and a half miles an hour. I mean, that's... <laughs> yeah, that's not... I can do that part. But yeah, that's, the, the part about continuously for yes. like 90 hours. That, well, that's that might where, be a little, a little right. hard. So the, the benefit in training would be that if you're able to get your average speed up to 12 miles an hour or 15 miles an hour, right. it gives you time to sleep. Right. And um, those are the folks that I really admire. That takes a lot of... Um, Bravery, in my opinion, especially the foul weather. I mean that right. that right there, especially your first big event was. You had been on one that was maybe half that distance before was to qualify. I did a one thousand k in July before PBP in August. Six hundred and thirty miles, I believe. So you had done something that was almost. Almost, but I still was very, I'm like, how am I going to do this? You know, and that 1,000 didn't go so well for me. I finished in 65 hours in plenty of time, but I had leg problems. My legs hurt really badly at the, near the end. And so I was worried that I wouldn't be able to do the full 1,200K. Were the leg problems from not eating enough? No, I didn't understand what it was from, but I later... I learned it was my saddle. Had been dropping the entire time. I was on the 600 and the 1,000. And so I wouldn't hurt at first because it was at the right height. But over the length of the event, it would drop on me. And so you're changing your leg position constantly. Sure, yeah. And you're getting into a position that's too low. And so my legs would start hurting and my knees would start hurting. It was a very gradual thing, and I did not understand what was going on. Why are my legs hurting like this? I've never had my legs hurt like this before. And I thought that it was because I'd never done anything this this long before or strenuous. So I knew that logically, and I could rationalize that, but still, to be in Paris, you know, or in the suburbs of Paris getting ready to start this thing i still had questions will i be able to do this will i be one of those who make it or will i get close and not make it Um, when you uh, go that far east or west you've got uh, six hours of jet lag 
I've often wondered, would it be better to go a week before? Most of the people in Randonoring tend to be middle-aged or above, just because they have a lot more time, generally. Usually, their children are grown up and they're on the verge of leaving the nest, or they've already left the nest, and so now these these parents have a lot more time. Yes. Or they're retired. Yes. You know, they have a lot of time. Right. But it's nothing that precludes younger people from doing it. Right. It just seems to be that's how things tend to shake out. Um, and, you know, I used to race. I When I was a racer, I thought anything more than 50 or 60 miles was, you know, that was kind of crazy. My hope is that people who think that 126 miles is too far for them, it's really not. If you take it as a challenge to see how far you can go, it's amazing what you can do on a bicycle. You know, the right gloves are critically important. The right saddle, the right cycling shorts, padded shorts, the right shoes, and the right pedals. It takes a little bit of time and effort and sometimes money to find the right combination. I would say that to anyone out there who thinks that um, it's beyond them, it's it's really not. And it just takes a little time and, and conditioning, both mental and physical, to see how far you can go. Thank you so much, Branson, for being with us today and telling us about this event. It's it's fascinating to me how you can cover all this ground and, and how you can endure the pain that goes along with it with a smile on your face. Chocolate croissants can do wonders. <laughs> so thank you, George. I've enjoyed this. I'd like to also thank my wife, Kathy, who joined us midway for some coffee. For the Carolina Tar Wheels, this is George Mapp.